When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the great Tom Frank will talk about Trump's populist appeal and whether Joe Biden, the guy from working-class Scranton, can win back the working-class white men who turned to Trump last time around. But first, Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and a member of the Judiciary Committee and the Budget Committee. And she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Recently, you faced off with Attorney General Barr in a Judiciary Committee hearing. Barr told your committee he believed that voting by mail on a large scale presented what he called, quote, a high risk of massive voter fraud. And Trump tweeted last week, the 2020 election will be totally rigged if mail-in voting is allowed to take place. This is one of more than something like 70 attacks he's made against voting by mail since March. How many people in your state of Washington vote by mail? Everyone in our state votes. We've had mail-in voting for years now. We're one of the states that's had it for the longest period of time. And when Bill Barr tried to say that voting by mail causes fraud, I submitted for the record an MIT study that uh, looked at the 250 million ballots that were cast by mail over the last 20 years and looked at the voter fraud rate. It was 0.00006%. So I was just talking to the speaker about this actually today because we are trying to make sure we get into the next relief package, the ability to get money to the postal service, to, um, to make sure that we have money that goes to states for uh, mail-in voting so that people can vote and not put themselves in harm's way in the midst of a pandemic. You know, there's an ironic thing here. In, in the past, Republican voters have been more likely to vote by mail than, than Democrats. So it appears that the biggest effect of Trump's attack on voting by mail may be to reduce the Republican turnout on, on Election Day. But a lot of us are worried about the declining ability of the Postal Service to deliver all of the mail uh, right now. What is happening to the Postal Service? Well, you know, there's been a longer standing issue with the Postal Service that has to do with the formula that was used to say that they needed to have money in reserve to cover pensions. 
And it was, it's a ridiculous formula that makes it seem like the Postal Service doesn't have enough money when in fact the Postal Service is doing fine. Um, but that formula needs to be changed. Now, separate from that, that meant that the Postal Service has ended up in this place where it desperately needed funding. Republicans have refused to provide that funding. And certainly in this moment where there's so much more being done by mail and the Postal Service, we have to recognize, is the one service that is serving red and blue districts, urban and rural. They go to some of the tiniest towns. And that's why Amazon and FedEx actually contacted contract with USPS to get mail. So Republicans, I think this is a concerted effort to undermine the Postal Service so that they can't deliver the ballots, the mail-in ballots on time, so that they can disrupt the elections. And I, I think it's a very callous way to undermine the elections. The Speaker is very aware of this. That's why we're fighting to make sure the Postal Service gets $25 billion so that they can deliver the mail in this critical moment, including our ballots. The most dramatic problem that we've seen recently is the New York primary. This is a state that's governed by Democrats. No evidence of deliberate voter suppression or, or fiddling with the count. If it's a preview of November, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. The New York Democratic primary was held on June 23rd. There's two key congressional races that have not yet been called because of a backlog of mail-in ballots. Uh, that's more than six weeks ago. Six weeks from Election Day is December 15th. That's one day after the Electoral College meets to declare the winner I know New York is not your state, but I'm sure you're worried about New York like like the rest of us. What is going wrong in New York? And I know you've talked about more funding to make sure the post office can collect and, and deliver absentee uh, ballots. Is that is that the whole problem in New York or is there more? No, many states, you know, unlike Washington state where we have vote by mail, you can send in your ballot until eight o'clock as long as it's postmarked on the day you can submit your ballot until eight o'clock the night of election day. And uh, we still get our results. I mean, they do trickle out and sometimes you have a close race and it might take several days for that to fully be counted. But um, our systems are updated. We can track ballots. We have a little thing you tear off the top so you can make sure that your ballot has been submitted, that it's been counted. Um, we know how many counters we need to look at the ballots. We have a system in place, but all of our machines are updated as well. And so the counting happens much faster. Many states did not have mail-in voting as their primary form of voting. So it was an alternative, but not that many people used it. And New York is an example of a state like that. So now this year, when everybody used it, they were not ready. They did not prepare. I don't know enough to know whether it was outdated equipment, not enough counters. I don't know what the what the problem was. But this is something we have to be very careful about because you can imagine if it takes two weeks or three weeks to declare an election, Trump is going to misuse that time and do everything he can to undermine the democracy. And so we've got to be able to get money to states to upgrade their voter systems and to be able to prepare for um, learning from states like mine how to do this effectively, efficiently and get it done. Well, it seems like most people will need to vote by mail in the November election, but we will still need in-person voting. And of course, a lot of people who are often volunteer to be uh, poll workers don't want to do it this year because of health 
reasons. They're often older or, and uh, they're declining to volunteer. Uh, what can we do about making sure that in-person voting remains viable the week of the election? Well, I think, you know, this is a tough question. Most of the people that have been at the polls have been older folks who are who have been doing it for years. And so it means we're going to have to train up a whole new group of people, ideally young people um, who are less at risk of getting the virus. But I do think that at the end of the day, we need to try to get as many people to vote by mail or vote early as possible. So if we were to spread it out then you would have, because you can't have the same numbers of people just lining up and being right next to each other when this pandemic is occurring. So we should try to get people to vote early. We should try to get people to vote by mail. We need to train um, and really develop a whole new group of younger poll wo voters who don't have pre-existing conditions and aren't at, as much at risk um, for contracting the virus. But this is going to be tough. Um, and again, I'm just so fortunate to live in a state where we had the, our primary election was last night and we had, you know, incredibly high turnout because everybody knows how to do it. We've been doing it for, for years. We know how to do it. People are aware of it. Now they're at home. So actually the rates went up of voting. I think because people are at home, they've got their ballot. They can look through the voter pamphlet, figure out who they want to vote for, perhaps with more time than they have in the past. Unlike a lot of other countries, voting in the United States is not organized by the federal government, except for setting the day of the presidential election. It's under state law, and it's the county registrars of voters who organize the actual polling. So this is not really something that Congress is even in charge of. So how do you see your role in relation to the you know federal system that we have in the United States? Well, we are responsible for ensuring that federal elections are um, are uh, you know pulled off, are are uh, allowed to happen, and so that does mean that we can help states to. That's why we have passed several bills that will help states to upgrade their their machines, invest in the infrastructure, the voting infrastructure, um, and also. Now what we're trying to do is ensure that all federal elections are vote by mail elections or have a vote by mail option. Um, and so that is a federal role. I did happen to just be talking to Senator Warren about this actually just today, earlier today. And um, I will say that I think that when we do take power again in the government, which I hope will be very, very soon, um, I do think we should look at the federal government federalizing some pieces of our election system, recognizing that if we have a, you know, a, a horrible constitutional destroying president, again, that may be a problem. But I also think that there is a real role for the federal government to play in ensuring that federal elections are um, are able to proceed and that states have what they need to ensure accurate counts and accurate systems. In that Judiciary Committee hearing with Attorney General Bill Barr, you criticized his sending federal forces to Portland to attack people protesting police brutality in contrast to his failure to act, quote, when white men with swastikas stormed a government building in Michigan with guns, close quote. Since that hearing, federal forces have pulled out of Portland, or at least they've pulled back. And what has been the result? 
things got better. Shock, shock, shock. When you don't put militarized agents in front of people who are trying to protest peacefully, uh, things get better. And I think that is the thing that we have seen over and over again since the Black Lives Matter protests is that um, unfortunately the response, including in some progressive cities, uh, was to send out a militarized response, which was exactly what the protesters were protesting to start with. But my um, questioning of Bill Barr was about the discrepancy between how he and the Department of Justice treated the protesters at Lafayette Square, right when the first protests uh, came, came about, and when Trump decided he wanted a photo op in front of a church. And so Bill Barr ordered people to, quote, get it done, to clear the protesters, to go out aggressively and offensively with shields, push people out of the way, pepper bombs, tear gas, um, and, you know, that kind of aggressive response. Now, contrast that with the response when there were protesters sw swarming or storming the Michigan Capitol with guns and swastikas and Confederate flags, then Bill Barr wasn't even aware of what was happening when they were calling for the governor to be beheaded and lynched. So very different responses to the president's opponents versus to those who are actually engendering his agenda. Pramila Jayapal, her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. We've been told many times that Trump won the 2016 election because his populist appeal won the white working class. They fell for his claim that he would fight for them against the heartless elites who had destroyed their jobs. Populism is the problem in this view. Populism gave us Donald Trump, the irrationality, the bigotry, and the authoritarianism of the white working class. Tom Frank says that's all wrong. He wrote the classic book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and several other bestsellers, including The Wrecking Crew and Listen Liberal. We've talked about all of them here. Now he's got a new book out. It's a terrific one. It's called The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. We reached him today at his childhood home in Kansas. Tom Frank, welcome back. Mr. John Wiener, it's great to be here. Well, your writing is so great. I want to start by asking you to read a brief section about what you call the democracy scare that followed Trump's election. Okay. And that's, yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a moment of hysteria among a certain kind, a certain slice of the elites that it was fear that democracy was out of control. And the word that they used to describe that sense of democracy out of control is, of course, populism. That's their word for it. Okay, so here, this is from The People Know. Sober citizens were worrying about populism at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Scholarly types were moaning about it at the annual Prague Populism Conference. High net worth individuals reviled it at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. The cool kids deplored it on the plains of Texas at South by Southwest. In the Netherlands, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation sponsored yet another convening on the subject. 
the proceedings were described like this. Populism has become a widespread phenomenon throughout the world. The danger of their backward-looking nostalgia for an idealized past, half-truths, and fake news stories pose a threat for free and open societies. At Brigham Young University, a squad of experts on this dangerous phenomenon were ready to go even before 2016. At Stanford, the Global Populisms Project which is co-chaired by a prominent former member of the Obama administration, declared as follows on its website. Populist parties are a threat to liberal democracy. But of course, it is true that white working class voters in the industrial Midwest, people who had once been Democrats, voted for Trump in large numbers. The pollsters call them whites without a college degree. Yes. And... They preferred Trump over Clinton by almost two to one in yes. 2016. So and, and I remember is, a guy who wrote a book about this years, even years before Trump. <laughs> it was called "What's the Matter with Kansas?" And, and why? And why? The, yeah, and why? I mean, I've been writing about this my whole adult life. So the big question is: If white workers did not support Trump because they are irrational and ignorant and authoritarian, why did they do it? Well, look. Trump's bigotry played a part. I don't, uh, you know, in what I'm about to say, I don't mean to deny that. I mean, the guy is, the guy's bigotry is in your face. It's loathsome. It seems to get worse as the years go by instead of better. But he also, in 2016, picked up on all kinds of uh, working class issues that the Democrats had, uh, had ignored and had, you know, the Democrats treated uh, working class voters of whatever racial background treated them as a captured constituency for many years. And, you know, if you paid attention to if you, you know, talk to people in labor unions or, you know, listen to AFL-CIO stuff, they were furious about it. They still are. Uh, they get treated like uh, like they don't matter by the Democratic Party. They're taken for granted. And Trump, you know, whether it's just accidental or he planned it this way, was able to reach out with, you know, when he talked about trade, when he talked about the endless wars, uh, you go on down the list when he, he would attack Wall Street all the time and, uh, link his opponent, Hillary Clinton to Wall Street. He was, he was saying things that resonated for these people. And uh, this is the important point. It, these were not necessarily irrational. Now, as we all know, Trump was, Trump was full of shit. If you study these issues, you can see that the guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. And of course, as president, he did, <laughs> he delivered disaster, you know, for these people. It has not been great for these people. But if you're just judging by what he was saying on the campaign trail, yeah, there's a certain rationality for it. Well, when I was in college, we were taught that the populist party of the 1890s was the source of this original irrational and reactionary kind of politics that was fearful of social change. The populace of the 1890s had an affliction called status anxiety, <laughs> we were taught. Yes, yes. Uh, and this was the work of one of the great, America's greatest historians, Richard Hofstetter, uh, liberal, he later admitted late in his life that he had distorted the evidence radically uh, and that he had been preoccupied with a frightening political phenomenon in his own world, McCarthyism. But tell us how the great Richard Hofstetter got it so wrong. Ooh, very famous book published in 1955 called The Age of Reform, where he uh, talked about the populist party, which had 
historians had always treated as a predecessor of welfare state liberalism, or a harbinger, I should say, a forerunner of welfare state liberalism, because that's where the evidence obviously points you. If you look at what the populace wanted to do and what they stood for and what they demanded and what they, you know, that's what it was. But Hofstadter was looking for, you know, in the 1950s, as you mentioned, there's a huge fear among intellectuals of McCarthyism. It's also after World War II, and uh, intellectuals in America and elsewhere in the world were obsessed with the problem of fascism. Where had it come from? How had uh, Hitler, you know, conned the German people into supporting him? And uh, uh, Hofstadter just seems to have decided to trace these things to populism and to have made of the word populism. By the way, a word that was coined by this political party in Kansas in the 1890s, about 20 miles from where I'm sitting, was where the word was, was, was consciously invented by a bunch of people. Hofstadter decided to take that word and to redefine it as sort of the symptom of working class, of mass working class movements. Now, other American historians dogpiled on him in the most incredible way and really destroyed the, uh, his interpretation of the populist party. And they did this very quickly. I'd say within, within five or ten years after his, his, uh, magnum opus was published. Why did he do it? And this is, this is a really interesting question because what you discover when you go back and read, uh, the age of reform, his attack on populism, is that it's, it's a work of history, but it's also, and John, you know this, all history is to some degree presentist. It's about the present. His book about the about the populists was also a manifesto for his generation of intellectuals who were then sort of coming up and coming into power in an unprecedented unprecedented way for intellectuals. They were taking over the, not only the universities but the great corporations. You know, guys with MBAs were suddenly running them instead of people who had uh, inherited them or built them up or you know whatever. And uh, intellectuals were running the departments in Washington. Intellectuals were running the Pentagon. Famously, Robert McNamara, the whole the managerial style was in the ascendance. And Hofstadter, along with a bunch of other what they used to call consensus intellectuals, and I know you remember these guys, <laughs> Daniel Bell, you know, Seymour Lipset. There's a whole bunch of them. They were uh, basically writing manifestos for their generation and why they deserved to rule, why it was right and just and correct for this to be happening in the 1950s. And they all of them settled on, well, following Hofstadter, they settled on this word to describe what they were displacing, the model for democracy that, that their vision of managerial technocracy was replacing. They called it populism. Populism was the opposite of them. Populism was mass movements in the street. Populism was, you know, millions of working class people uh, demanding something or another, whether it's through the People's Party in the 1890s or the labor movement in the 1930s. And that form of politics basically was obsolete, Hofstadter was saying, and Daniel Bell was saying, and they were all saying. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. You say that the Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota in the 30s was the apostolic successor to the old People's Party of the 1890s, and you say we should all learn about Floyd B. Olson, governor <laughs> yes. of Minnesota. Yes, I elected do. Elected <laughs> in 1930. 
Tell us about Floyd B. Olson. Uh, Floyd Olson was this amazing personality, uh, you know, magnetic uh, personality, amazing radio speaker, and was a, a elected governor of Minneapolis, of Minnesota, sorry, governor of Minnesota in the 30s, uh, and was uh, said openly, "I'm not, you know, I'm not a liberal. I'm a radical." And proposed uh, extremely radical measures for the time, a moratorium on, on uh, foreclosures, uh, you know, all a sort of local version of, of Social Security, all these sorts of things. And, uh, yes, came out, he was had been a member of the IWW at one time. And I like to go back to people like Floyd Olson, who are so obviously in the populist tradition, because they contradict the way we use the word uh, nowadays, just really bluntly. And so the, the book is made up with of anecdotes like the story of Floyd Olson, John. It's a, a whole bunch of different characters and figures like that, including Franklin Roosevelt, including Martin Luther King, including Bayard Rustin, including all sorts of heroes uh, of, of the left and of liberalism who are clearly part of the populist tradition, but who don't fit when our modern day pundits you know, use it as a word to denote um racist authoritarianism. You know, that's clearly not what Floyd Olson was. I want to get back to the Trump phenomenon. You have suggested that that uh, it was not irrational or crazy for white working class people in the industrial Midwest to to believe that Hillary Clinton had ties to Wall Street. In <laughs> no, fact, well, that is... was obviously true. <laughs> that was clearly correct. Look, you and I have been around politics for a long time, and we know that, that that's not really an accurate way of understanding Hillary Clinton's politics. But it was pretty damning. If you, don't, if, you're, if you don't know a whole lot about it and you haven't followed it all your life, that's pretty bad. And also, everybody, remember, was furious about the Wall Street bailouts. Absolutely furious. And Trump was he was fairly good at capturing that anger, speaking to that anger. Let's talk about 2020 now. Joe Biden is from Scranton, a white working class place. He didn't come out of Yale Law School or the University of Chicago like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Is Joe Biden going to turn the Democrats away from the anti-populism they have been engaged in since the Clinton New Democrat era? Is Joe Biden going to embrace his roots in Scranton? Is Joe Biden going to expose Trump as, as a phony populist and he claim the ground of him being the real, the real oh spokesman God. of the white I, workers? Okay, that last part, no, I don't, I don't think he'll go that far. But it's, you, you, you put your finger on something there that your audience is going to be really interested in, and that is that the Democrats have become an anti-populist party, and they have become Richard Hofstadter's ideal of managerial government. That's really who they are, even though the Democratic Party itself came from, you know, Roosevelt, etc., William Jennings Bryan came from this very populist place. That's how they became who they are. And But they have they've turned their backs on that. And unfortunately, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton before that really embodied that shift. Although, remember, Bill Clinton had a certain sort of folksy way that was very, you know, winning. Uh, but once he got into power, of course, it's all just, you know, more power to the technocrats. Get some guys in here from Yale Law School. They'll fix it. And Biden, you know, at least does not have that sort of cultural baggage. There, I mean, there's one thing you can say for sure about Biden, and that is he will never call Trump supporters deplorables. He will never write off a big part of the American population. 
in that way. And you remember that really was that really hurt Hillary when she said that. By the way, she backed off of it, but the, the American right away because she realized what a mistake that was. But the American, you know, pundit corps said, "No, that's exactly what they are. We live in a country of where we just we basically can't uh, stand democracy anymore because democracy means rule by these people who have no business telling us what to do." Uh, Biden will never make that mistake. And you have some striking um, quotes from an interview uh, Joe Biden did uh, with the New York Times where he recalls being told by a Hillary Clinton operative during the 2016 campaign that he should make a distinction between progressive values and working class values. The thing about Biden is 90% of his public statements are just, you know, the usual politician crap you know they're just they're nothing but if you pay really close attention to him every now and then he will slip into something that's kind of profound where he really does like these people the you know the the white working class people and he says in this interview with the new york times and it's a really long interview and i had to read the whole thing it's a, he says it's at the very end they must have been going for two hours or something and it's with the new york times editorial board uh, and he basically antagonizes the editorial board. He says, you know, it's a, you think it's all about smart people like you, but I'm here to tell you that these white working class people who Democrats think are so, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and unreliable are actually in many ways much more progressive than you, meaning the New York Times editorial board on economic issues. And I thought that was kind of awesome of Biden to say that. You know, there are people who I admire who think Biden is a really great guy. I, I'm, I, I'm not now starting to sound like a Biden partisan. And I, just so you know, I'm not. I voted for Bernie in the primary. I am not a Biden supporter by any stretch. I thought he was the worst candidate up there on the stage. But Bernie really likes him. And you have to, you know, you have to wonder why. What's the reason for that? Okay, so Joe Biden understands the problem of the Democrats abandoning the, their working class base. But isn't... Isn't he, all this talk about the working class just an act? Isn't he really just another Clintonian tool of the Wall Street Silicon Valley Democrats? That would be his entire career trajectory that you've just described. What he actually did in in terms of legislation is is dreadful. I mean, Wall Street has no better friend than Joe Biden. Uh, the 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 notorious bankruptcy bill that passed when George Bush was president that was largely his work. You know, the, the various trade agreements, he voted for them. You know, the really bad ones. He defended them when he was Obama's VP. And the, the one that really gets me is mass incarceration. This is a crime that the Democrats really have, have to answer for and really have not yet atoned for or explained or made their peace with. Uh, and, uh, passing these laws when, uh, Reagan and Clinton were president that basically put a whole generation of black kids in prison. And Biden is, Probably the Democrat most, after Bill Clinton, most responsible for those laws. What's funny is, uh, far as I can tell, the, the, you know, the woke media has yet to make him answer for anything. But do you think that all this is, is changing now? Do you think the current economic collapse is, bring, is going to bring about the end of the Wall Street anti-populist theme of uh, democratic politics is joe biden Certainly. going to herald in a new era of of liberal politics mm. some people think so but i don't um I, I i would like to think so i wish i thought that i wish i was i believed that 
but I don't. And one of the reasons I don't is because the uh, anti-populism, as I describe it, has is is everywhere you look in the American in the American media now, and center-left types uh, have really turned against uh, the idea of mass social movements. You know, the idea of working-class movements to bring about economic you know, economic reform. That idea has become in a very short amount of time. I mean, it was just last year when every candidate on the stage was trying to sound like Bernie Sanders. And now here we are. That stuff is is so far gone. And so I don't see any uh, any any pressure on Biden to move back towards it. Now, that said, I think Trump is done for. I don't see how you get how you bungle a pandemic like he has done and get reelected. I don't see how you get 15% unemployment and get reelected. This is a disaster. And, uh, I, you know, there's, unless he, unless he comes up with some new way to, uh, you know, uh, disenfranchise huge numbers of people, I don't see, I don't see how he gets reelected. One last thing, your title, the people know that comes from uh, a specific place, the people, yes. Who was it who wrote the people, yes? Uh, Carl Sandburg, uh, one of the great sons of Illinois and uh, a truly great uh, writer in the early part of the 20th century who wrote a book-length poem in the 30s called The People, Yes. It was one of the sort of – the 1930s were a period of just – overwhelming cultural populism, faith in the com- what they used to say, the common man, you know. And uh, you see that in the movies, you see it in the politics, and you see it in the literature. And Carl Sandburg is sort of one of the I- – I-, I love that guy. Tom Frank, his terrific new book is The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Tom, congrats on this book. It's always great to have you on the show. John, it's my pleasure to be here. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.